Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. All right, so let's turn our attention to the seventh commandment. Let me just get over here and... uh, Get my notes ready. We are going to be reading from Exodus 20 from verse 14. Very short, but very clear commandment. So here we go. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Do you want to know what the most scandalous misprint in all of Bible translation history was? This is Almost hard to believe. Almost a year after this particular Bible was printed, think about this, a year after it was printed and released, a particular word was discovered that was missing from the text of this translation. It was the 1631 King James Version. And the word that was left out was the word not. Now, you could leave that word out of many other different places, but this is where it was left out. It was left out of the seventh commandment. Can you believe it? Which meant that this particular version, the 1639 version of the King James Bible said, thou shall commit adultery. The commandment was to commit adultery. Well, obviously, the 1631 edition was quickly pulled out of print And uh, it was quickly framed and known as the Wicked Bible. And uh, while I was double-checking the facts on this, I actually Googled it. And uh, in 2015, there was one of the last known versions of the 1631 version uh, available for sale. And it was a very costly uh, purchase. I think mostly just because of this unique, uh, big, very big mistake. So... When talking about adultery, uh, we have to acknowledge the far-reaching and deeply damaging effects of this particular sin. Um, In many ways, adultery is a direct onslaught against marriage, against family, and against society. It's one of those sins that has numerous ripple effects flowing from the particular sin to all sorts of uh, realities beyond itself. And so it really does strike deeply at the heart of human relationships. It strikes deeply to the heart of trust and to what we call love. The sad thing is that our generation has in many ways institutionalized adultery. I mean, it's almost expected now, if you're watching a movie, that there would be some scene that involves some kind of adulterous affair, or if you pick up a book, the latest book, or if you're watching a series, or if you're thinking about celebrities, there's there's hardly a scandal that doesn't involve adultery. Think of our sporting heroes, even greeting cards. I, I, I checked this out, and there is a greeting card that has this particular statement. I love the secret life we share. All that to say that you don't have to go far today to see why this is a very important commandment and to see why God would speak this commandment to us. Now, you might have heard the saying, 
keep the government out of the bedroom. And uh, we can understand the logic behind that. Uh, governments sometimes want to overreach their jurisdiction. And, uh, and that would be a good point. Yes, stay out of the bedroom, governments. But what we see here is that God wants to be very much involved in what happens in the bedroom. God wants to be involved and God wants to have a say in our sexuality. God wants to speak to our sexual practices. All of this means really that actually our whole lives, not just our religious life, but our whole lives is under the lordship of, the, of Jesus Christ. Every part of our lives matters to God including what happens in the bedroom. And so, for example, 1 Corinthians 6, we read the following from verse 13 onwards, uh, statements like this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And then down in verse 20, glorify God, where? In your body. Not just with your mouth, not just with your devotions, not, not only in church or midweek or where it might be, with your very body, this body that is a temple, God is interested in and God wants to help us to live in the body, with the body, to the glory of God. And so although our modern society, I think we can easily acknowledge that there is a pandemic of its own sort around this particular issue of sexual sin, we also want to acknowledge that this is also an ancient problem. It's, it's ancient not only because we're reading about it here in the Exodus story, and so that already takes us very far back into history, but we also realize that as God has gathered this community at Sinai, God has gathered the Israelites, He is giving them the, His laws to help shape them so that they would be a nation under God's rule and that they would flourish, that there would be human flourishing, and that they would multiply. God's intent was that through man and woman, in one lifelong committed relationship, that this community would be fruitful and multiply. And in order to do that, it requires marriage. And if order, in order for there to be flourishing marriage and for there to be multiplying of families, then we need to do it God's way. God's way is not burdensome. God's ways are life-giving. And so even when we look back all the way throughout history, and even all the way back to the Israelites here at Sinai, we realize that, that, that this is a human problem, that humans have struggled with their sexuality and with sexual sin for a very long time. It's not just a modern phenomenon. But together with sexual sin comes deep wounds. Together with sexual sin comes deep brokenness. And we could almost conclude that we should expect that this would be the case. Because when we talk about marriage and we talk about sex, these are two important and precious gifts that God has given to humanity. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if the devil was going to take aim at two of God's important gifts, no doubt he would target these two particular areas. And that is what we see when we survey world history and church history. So I want to talk to us this morning about these realities under two headings. The first one we're going to look at is this. Adultery is forbidden because marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. 
Now, as we've been going through the commandments, you would have noticed that there are many holy realities. Firstly, we are confronted in the first commandment that God is holy and that he deserves exclusive worship, no other God. So there's an exclusive loyalty that God demands. We go on and we see that God's name is holy. We shouldn't use his name in vain. We see that there is a day, a Sabbath day that's holy. That's a sacred day. We see that family should be honored. Family is sacred. It's important. Then the the commandment, do not murder. Why? Because human life is sacred. Life itself is sacred. And then today we see that marriage is holy. Marriage is sacred. And so there is an important link here between our response to God, how we respond as believers to God, but also how we respond to one another. There is a direct correlation between how we love God and how we love one another. And this is the important point that this commandment is helping us to see. At Sinai, God is showing the Israelites that exclusive loyalty to God alone must be reflected in their exclusive loyalty in their marriage relationships to one another. And so if God demands exclusive loyalty in commitment to God alone, that should be reflected in a human covenantal relationship. So as believers, we are in a covenant relationship to God. We've been brought into a unique relationship with God. God has won us. God has redeemed us. God has purchased us. God has adopted us into his family. And he has brought us, at least at this particular point in history, into the new covenant. Here for Israel at Sinai, it would have been into the old covenant. But it's still a covenantal arrangement. It's a covenant relationship. And so too in marriage then, we see that marriage is a covenant. It is a covenant relationship with your spouse or with your future spouse, if maybe you're not yet married. And so the marriage covenant is then consummated in the sexual union between a husband and a wife. And the Bible tells us that the two, male and female, shall become one flesh. All of that to say that there is a binding together and a covenanting together of relationship, which therefore at a human level reflects and mirrors God's relationship to the church. We know this to be true, don't we? We know from Ephesians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul makes this explicitly clear that there is a unique mirroring or picture of Christ's relationship to the church reflected in marriage between husband and wife. Now, what is interesting is that as we journey through the Old Testament, we get to the point where we see that Israel have forsaken their loyalty to God. Israel have gone after other gods. Israel have forsaken God. They have rebelled and they've gone after the gods of the nations. And how does God address them? Well, interestingly, God addresses them as adulterers. You're an adulterous generation, he says. Why? Why would he say that to them? Well, because of this link, because of the picture between their relationship with God and the human relationship. The display of their disloyalty to God 
is as if it was an adulterous arrangement. And so we see here that covenant love, true biblical love, is reflected in loyalty. Let me say that again. Covenant love, whether it's for God or for spouse, is reflected in exclusive loyalty. Therefore, he says, don't commit adultery because it's a display of disloyalty. It is a breaking of covenant. We see that this connection is also made in another very famous story, uh, a sad but famous story, and that is the connection that we see in the life of David, King David. In the Old Testament, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, we know that David had obviously sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, not only because of his adultery, but also because he gets him killed. But when we find David eventually repenting, coming to his senses, feeling the weight of his sin, the conviction of God upon his heart, what do we find? How, how does David repent? And this is insightful because we hear him praying a particular way. And we see this in Psalm 51 verse 4 where we read this, where David says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now you might think, oh, is he, is he speaking to Uriah? Is he speaking to Bathsheba's husband who's now dead? Well, that's impossible because he's dead. But also, he's not repenting towards Uriah. He is repenting towards God. Now, he's not undermining the fact that he actually did sin horizontally against Uriah, and he did sin against Bathsheba and against his community and everyone else. The point I'm trying to make is, he acknowledges the important link between his disloyalty horizontally to his disloyalty to God. He is speaking here to God because he understands that his adultery has really struck right at the heart of his relationship with God. And so he's not denying the reality of his sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah, but he is affirming that first and foremost, this act of sexual sin is a strike against his loyalty to God. And he is repenting of that. It highlights for us this important point of why. Because it's destructive, not only horizontally, but also vertically. Now, my second point is this. Point B, adultery is the fruit, not the root. As we saw with the sixth commandment, do not murder, we see here again that Jesus wants to speak to this commandment in the New Testament. And so Jesus has this to say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit Adultery. So Jesus affirms this in the New Testament. This isn't done away with. This is reinstated by Jesus himself. Do not do this. It is destructive. Then he says this, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her 
in his heart. Now, like we said last week, Jesus is not now suddenly raising the bar as if it were okay in the Old Testament to look upon women with lust. No, it was never okay. Jesus is not raising the bar. He is explaining the standard. Jesus is expositing the heart behind the commandment. He is showing us the depths and the breadths of this commandment. He is showing us the perfect nature of this law and how far we fall short. Jesus' point is to show us, us today who might be thinking, hey, I think, you know, commandment six and commandment seven, I, I think I've passed the test. Well, actually, no. All have sinned. And in this particular area, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus's point is to show us that heart adultery is equal to the act of adultery. Actually, what he's saying is adultery happens first in the heart before it happens in the bedroom or wherever it might be. Here's what Jesus actually says. Have a look again with me at Matthew 5. He says that it is lustful intent. That is the root problem. That's where we need to focus our attention. If we're going to obey this commandment, if we're going to live in glory to God and not in glory to ourselves, we need to attack the root issue, not just the fruit, because there is something behind the fruit that is causing that particular action. And so we do not escape just because we think, well, I haven't actually committed adultery. Well, we have to think again. We have to again bow before God's holy righteous standard and acknowledge that we have sinned and we have fallen short. And maybe we haven't actually done that act. Maybe we actually haven't committed it externally, but we have sinned internally. So what do we do? Well, I just want to say a few things about this. I think that we need to be careful here because it's, it's not that we need to eliminate all appreciation for God's beauty and, and God's creation. Um, so, for example, it's not wrong to acknowledge that someone is pretty or someone's handsome. But when we take those second looks, for example, or when we linger longer, or when we look with lustful intent, it is then that we are treading into very dangerous territory. You see, there is an inappropriate desiring. There is an inappropriate longing. There is a desire that leads to sin. And hear me, it moves very fast. And so we need to be vigilant with our own hearts. It moves very quickly from simply looking to lusting. There's a great saying that says, and I'm not sure who said it, must have been someone, maybe one of the Puritans, uh, which says this, you can stop a bird from landing on your head. Uh, sorry, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest. And it's the same with these thoughts. It's the same with the looks. You might not be able to stop the initial look or the, the first sudden visual or sight or thought, but you can not look again. You can stop the thought 
from taking root. So the bird might land there, but then the, what, you, what do you do with it? You don't make a home for the bird. No, you chase it away. And so we need to be vigilant regarding our hearts. How do we obey the seventh commandment? Well, it starts with thoughts and it starts with hearts. Now, what I want to do is I want us to look at a couple of examples. The first example is what we shouldn't do. And that is King David. We're going to look at him again. And uh, because this is exactly what got David into trouble. It was another look. It was a second look. It was a third look. It was an inquiry. It was something that he entertained in his heart and it got him into big trouble. So go with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11, 1 through 4. And we read the following. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbath. But David remained at Jerusalem. Let's just pause there. The first thing we need to notice is that David should have been out at war. Verse 1, it says, in the season when kings go out to battle, well, what's he doing at home? Something is prohibited. Something has Stop David from fulfilling his kingly function of going out to battle. We don't know what it is, but for some reason, he has chosen to stay in Jerusalem. But David remained at Jerusalem. He should have been out there. He should have been actively engaged. He should have been working. He should have been fulfilling his job. There's there's something about boredom or laziness or apathy that can get us into trouble. Let's read on. Verse 2. The text says, it happened. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Well, David was having an afternoon nap, we think, on the couch When he should have been at work, he should have been working, but he's in the afternoon, in the sun, on the couch. He gets up, he goes for a stroll, and whoa, there's Bathsheba bathing, and she is hot. I mean, the text tells us she's very beautiful. Not just beautiful, very beautiful. So what does David do? Does he chase the bird away? No, no, look at this, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And that should have been enough for David. David should have gone, okay, whoa, stop. Let me just backtrack here. Let me just sort myself out. Verse 4. So what does David do? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. David, in a sense, inboxed her. Private message. David went beyond what was happening in his heart. It started there, started in his thoughts, moved to his heart, and eventually was acted upon. So I want to say to us, 
don't be like David. Don't be like David. Some preachers love to tell you, be like David. You can slay your giants. Well, right here, right now, he's not slaying any giants. He's giving in to his sinful desires. So what should he have done? That's the question. What should he have done? And that's what we're talking about today. Well, let's look at what Jesus has to say again. In Matthew 5, we've already looked at the first part, but here's what Jesus says right afterwards. Have a look again at verse 28. He goes on and he says, Everyone who looks at a woman, David, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's what David should have done. Verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, And throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it out, cut it off, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The consequence is serious. Jesus is not messing about here. He is saying that this kind of sin, this kind of sinful behavior will land you up in hell. This is not a sin to be trifled with. Jesus is not advocating that you uh, violently detach your eye from its socket. The, the, The language here is metaphorical, but it is Strong. It is aggressive. He is saying to us that we need to deal decisively and almost aggressively with the things that lead us towards sin, in particular sexual sin. If it's going to cause you to sin, then get rid of it. Act decisively. Act swiftly and act aggressively. And so whatever it might be, your computer, your phone, if if your smartphone is causing you to stumble and to sin, then get that old Nokia that won't be able to let you onto the internet. So whatever it is, cut it off, gouge it out, Jesus says. Listen, guys, this is a fight to the death. This is like a born identity movie situation. It is a fight to the death. There are no rules. Because if we don't deal with this decisively, we're going to get taken out. Don't be like David. So then who should we be like? Well, yes, obviously we must be like Jesus. And Jesus was pure in every way. But I want us to look together in closing at Joseph. I want us to contrast David's response to Joseph's response. Because Joseph's response in Potiphar's house is such a wonderful example. And there's such practical applications here for us. So I want to close by going to Genesis chapter 39. And I want to look at a few things that happened. And you'll notice there's some similarities in the stories between David's on the rooftop situation story and Joseph's. It's a different context, but some similar principles. So the first thing we see in Joseph's situation, and, and this is why I want to say to you, don't be like David, be like Joseph, is Joseph refused. Have a look at this, Genesis 39 from verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome. All right, here we go. Here's the, here's the difficulty. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance And after a time, his master's wife. So now the 
It's it's the other way around. It's 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 the master's wife who's now pursuing Joseph. Master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, "Lie with me." So what does Joseph do? Verse eight. But he refused. Here's what I like about this, and we don't know if there was more conversation, but the text seems to tell us that he gets his refusal in quickly. You got to be quick. You got to be hot on the heels of the temptation. You got to get your refusal in very quick. You got to cut it off. Jesus says you got to gouge it out. You know, if you you got to you got to put it to death very fast. So Joseph gets his refusal in very quickly. That's a good strategy. Uh, Colossians chapter three, verse five and six, it tells us to do this very thing. Paul says, "Put to." Death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Notice how the commandments are interlinked here. Again, as we've been saying, they are not isolated. They flow and function together. And then he says this. If you don't put these things to death, these very practical, sinful Sins, these things that you do in your body, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In other words, what is he telling us to do? Get your refusal in quickly. Put it to death. And, and, and the point here is that you've got to be ruthless. You've got to be ruthless with temptation. Don't entertain it. Don't. Don't be reckless. Verse 6 is about if you don't do it, you are being reckless because the wrath of God is going to fall upon you. So don't be reckless. Be ruthless with the temptation. Get your refusal in early. Point 2 or point B. Reason. Look at this. Joseph starts to apply his mind objectively. Look at this. Verse 8 to 9. He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's been entrusted with stewardship in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. In other words, we are on equal standing. He trusts me so much. Nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are his wife. Then he says this. How then... Can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? You see the parallels there again between David in his repentance and now Joseph reasoning, logically thinking this through. You know, I might be able to act on this impulse, on this advance from this beautiful woman. But what are the consequences? What are the realities? What's the outworking of this? What's the trajectory of it? And he begins to reason. He, begins to, he reinforces his conviction as he reasons. How could I do this to my master? How can I do this? It's, this is his wife, not mine. And, and, and he begins to reinforce through reasoning, logical reasoning. Play it out. Think about the consequences for your life, for your future, for your family. You're going to lose your kids, your wife, your family. You may lose your job. You may lose your ministry. Whatever it might be, it's not worth it. How can I do this? 
against my master. How can I do this against my God? Consider what it's going to cost you. Ultimately, one small moment of indulgence of the flesh, it's going to cost you a lifetime of pain and heartache. It's not worth it. Point C, Joseph, again, regular resistance. This, this, this lady doesn't want to give up. Look at this in verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. She, she has a strategy. She has a couple of cunning ways to try and lure him in. But Joseph is regularly resisting. At this point, I think uh, we would have said, listen, you need to leave your job. And that would be wisdom. But it's a different day and age. It's a different culture. And, and Joseph, I think, had no option but to work in Potiphar's house. But notice that he regularly resisted. Each day she would come with her excuses. She would come with her advances. And he kept on resisting. Be like Joseph. D, get ready for the perfect storm. Check this out. She doesn't stop. Verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house. So all the other men had left. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. I mean, this is the perfect storm, really. This is the, the kind of ultimate vulnerable moment where he could have, you know, maybe thought, hey, no one will see. No one is around. In fact, she's got me already. She's grabbed my jacket. My coat is almost off. Hey, no one's around. No one's going to see. But what does he do? No, no. He's ready for the perfect storm. And we need to be ready. And part of this sermon, if you're listening right now, this sermon is preparing you. It's equipping you mentally with conviction. You're hearing God's word and it's helping you to get ready for the perfect storm. So when the storm hits, you can resist, you can refuse, and you can push back. We need to be ready for the temptation because it's coming. It's coming. We live in a sex-obsessed world. We live in a culture where it is all around us. Everywhere you look, we've got to be ready for the perfect storm. And lastly, point E, run Run. Check how, check how Joseph responds. Verse 12. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out the house. Listen, this is, this is one of the few fights that you will win by running away. You need to run for the hills. You need to get out of there. And, and, and so whenever you feel the storm coming, the temptation coming, the, the trap coming, the situation, the look, the second look, the, the website, the, the click, whatever it might be, run away. Run away as fast as you can. Even if it's going to cost you in the moment, it will not cost you what you will pay later on. I want to close with an analogy. And it's a, a story that comes out of a a Canadian context where there is extremely cold weather. And uh, 
It, it's actually in a time of springtime, a change of seasons, where some of the ice blocks on some of these big lakes and rivers uh, begin to break up. And so it's in between seasons and these huge ice blocks begin to break up. And the story goes that these huge eagles would sometimes come down and, uh, and looking for food that would land on these ice blocks. But because it was in between seasons, sometimes they would stay too long on the ice block. And before they knew it, while they were looking for food, for fish in the water, they would be stuck because they had lingered too long. And so they were not able to take off. And so their feet would be stuck to the ice block. And let me tell you, if this was happening on the Niagara River and you are busy heading towards the Niagara Falls, you're in big trouble. I'm sure you get the point. When we land on situations or when we land on a website or when we land in a context in the office or in the workspace or in school or wherever it might be on your phone, if you stay there too long, if you land on that and you don't take off and run and refuse and resist, what happens is you get stuck and eventually you go over the falls and it's devastating and destruction. So what do we do? Well, we hear the command and we obey it. We get ready to obey it. We prepare ourselves for obedience. What happens if we have already fallen? Well, the truth is we've all messed up in this area. We've all made the mistake. It may be in action, in adultery. It may be heart adultery. What do we do? Well, let's not be so harsh on David because there is a sense in which we can be like David, just the repentant David. And so my final point and exhortation is, yes, be like repentant David. You see, we do mess up and we do make mistakes, but there is hope and there is forgiveness and there is healing. We know of stories that God has put marriages together. God has put families together. God has redeemed. This is, this is God's speciality is to redeem and restore. And so I want to exhort you to two things. One is resist it. And if it's happened already, then seek reconciliation, resistance and reconciliation. Here's what David went on to pray in Psalm 51. He said this to God, hide your face from my sins. He's acknowledging his, his sin. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. He knows that that's actually what he deserves. Jesus said it. it we'll be thrown into hell if we do not repent and take this seriously. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here it is. Restore. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God wants us to both resist and he's also wanting to restore. Let's pray together. Father, we have dealt with a weighty, weighty subject today. But I really do sense that 
that this is a gracious moment. This is not a condemning moment, not at all. This is a gracious moment where your word is coming to us in love and saying, you are my people and this is my word for you. This is my desire for you. This is the way in which I want to protect you. I want to help you. I want to strengthen you. I don't want you to fall prey to these broken rhythms of life. And so I want to pray for everyone watching, male and female, that you would help us to rise above the cultural destruction, the cultural narrative of sexual obsession, and that you would help us to be a sexually pure people with hearts, Lord, that are devoted to you, loyal to you, loyal to our spouses, and maybe if we're not yet married, loyal to our future spouses. Lord, I pray for everyone listening and everyone watching that you would strengthen us. We want to be more like Joseph. We want to be more like Jesus. And we want to be like repentant David. And so help us, Lord, strengthen us for the fight. May we never stop fighting. May we keep, as John Owen says, may we keep killing sin so that sin doesn't kill us. May we put it to death quickly. We need you, Lord, to help us in this day and age. And we thank you that there is forgiveness and there is grace and there is restoration in Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.